Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello, I'm Andrew Neal, and this is The Backstory, a series of in-depth interviews with people who have the power to shape events and to influence our understanding of them. In this episode, I'm joined by a man who was Prime Minister of Australia twice, and before that, a diplomat. Kevin Rudd was posted to the embassy in Beijing, which is when he first met the man who would go on to lead China today, Xi Jinping. A proponent of engaging with China, Kevin Rudd has written a new book called The Avoidable War. He's also chief executive and president of the Asia Society in New York. I spoke to him about China under President Xi's leadership, the West policy towards it, and what it's like seeing his party back in power in Australia. This is the backstory from Tortoise. Kevin Rudd, some used to argue that as China got richer, it would become less authoritarian. But under President Xi, it's gone from authoritarian to pretty much full totalitarian. Why? Well, I think it's certainly intensified its authoritarianism. And I think the reason why Xi Jinping has taken politics in China in that direction is that he fears ultimately the loss of control by the Communist Party. Xi Jinping is a Leninist sees the Communist Party, to paraphrase him, as the backbone of the nation, the vanguard of the revolution. These may seem antiquated phrases in our discussions in the West. They're not so antiquated in Beijing, where they remain a live part of the political discourse. So it's all about long-term political control by the party. It's interesting that that has developed un, under President Xi because we'd come to think, rightly or wrongly, uh, that communism was largely a sham in sort of state capitalist China. But as you say, President Xi talks a lot about Marxism-Leninism. He's resurrected, I think it was an old Maoist phrase, common prosperity, which sort of means socialism. He's talking about, is this just talk or where is it leading? I can understand how a number of people in the collective West would have seen this as uh, cosmetic ideology during the period of Deng Xiaoping, uh, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, essentially from 1978 through until 2012. Mind you, throughout that period, the Communist Party always described itself as a Marxist-Leninist party. 
And when push came to shove, remember 1989 in Tiananmen, the Leninist Party asserted itself with full vigour, deployed the military, uh, and then crushed what they saw as the counter-revolution of 1989. So it's always been there. However, since Xi Jinping took over in 2012-13, if you look carefully at his internal ideological discourse, he's basically haunted by the collapse of the Soviet Union, haunted by the collapse of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, and he regards the weakening of ideology as the breaching of the outer defences of the system. And that's why you've seen a much more concerted push to reinsert the party into the centre of Chinese politics, administration and the economy and increasingly foreign policy as well. You can see that part of what this means under President Xi is that the state is playing a bigger role uh, again in a number of areas. And one of the things that surprised many people is that he cracked down hard on China's vibrant high-tech center sector. He seems to think that its entrepreneurial elite, which of course had become mega rich, represented a threat to him and to the Chinese Communist Party. But isn't there a risk that in doing so, he undermines China's economic miracle? Very much so. And this is a contest ultimately between ideological rectitude as defined by Xi Jinping as a classical Marxist-Leninist on the one hand, and the dictates of economic pragmatism on the other, which is about growing people's living standards, uh, improving employment opportunities and growing the economic power of the Chinese nation. In the past 35 years under Deng, Zhang and Hu, essentially the nature of that equation was we put politics and ideology second, and we put uh, economic growth animated by market principles in first place. Interestingly, Deng Xiaoping justified that himself in Marxist-Leninist terms as a necessary stage in the evolution of society and the economy. But what Xi Jinping has done is turn that on its head. It's ideology and politics first, the economy second. And of course, the ultimate... Um, dilemma faced by long-term authoritarian regimes in pursuit of their long-term political resilience uh, is that they're undermined. they undermine their economic base for legitimacy. You've seen that already over the last five years with a slowing in China's uh, productivity growth, a slowing in China's private fixed capital investment numbers, and also, as you said, the collective entrepreneurial class taking fright at what they see as a Xi's common prosperity agenda. So for those reasons, the tensions are real. But Xi Jinping, his resolve is ultimately one of control, and he believes he can manage the economic cost on the way through. It's interesting that he sees that political control uh, is more important than economic dynamism, in a sense. I think that's uh, uh, probably the right way to see it. But it... I wonder sometimes if in the West we underestimate the formidable economic problems uh, that he faces, that China now faces. The, the state-owned industries, the ones that remain state-owned and state-controlled, they, they now form a, a massive rust belt. The high-tech sector now has the dead hand of the state hanging over it. The property market is the biggest financial bubble in the world, $5 trillion of debt trillion, I should emphasise, uh, of debt. Uh, there's a lot of difficulties in there, is there not? I think it's correct uh, that when we analyse 
the strength of modern China, both in its politics, in its economics, and its security policy, that we often overlook the internal fragilities of the system. We've just talked about one of them, which is the rigidities which arise from excessive political control. Purely within politics itself, as people now experience less personal and, frankly, intellectual freedom under Xi Jinping than under his three most recent predecessors. But on the economy, um, it is also the case uh, that there are a raft of um, political and economic challenges or political economy challenges which confront the regime. You pointed to the state-owned enterprise sector. It is massive. It is inefficient. But rather than as Xi Jinping's predecessors did, which, which was identified this as a massive economic problem which needed to be addressed by turning more productive uh, activity over to the private sector. Xi Jinping instead has put this process in reverse. The state and enterprise sector has had a rebirth of activity. The so-called mixed economy model has enabled state owned enterprises now to merge with private firms or requiring productive private firms to merge with dysfunctional state owned enterprises. And on top of that, uh, also, uh, you've seen the crackdowns in the tech sector and the crackdowns in the property sector. Now, the tech sector and the property sector and the private sector have been the three major generators of economic growth, employment growth, and increase in living standards in recent times. So again, in pursuit of uh, Xi Jinping's ideological agenda, rather than seeking to reform the state and enterprise sector, instead we've seen a reassertion of the centrality of the Chinese party state. And once again, the private sector has been the non-beneficiary, but the macroeconomy is the non-beneficiary as well. The Western assumption has been that China's undoubted economic success over the past 20, 30, 40 years uh, just continues until it replaces America as the world's largest economy. It may start to grow a bit more slowly as it is now, but even so, that's the trajectory that it's on. But when you look at its aging population, aging more quickly than the authorities thought, uh, the workforce already declining, by some estimates, by around 3 million a year, which is quite remarkable, and the growing repression of its people, is it necessarily a given that China just continues to succeed economically? No, it is not a given at all. And that's the actual ground zero, if you like, of the current political and political economy debate within China right now. And essentially, uh, the debate is, if you're going to continue to preference politics and ideological control over entrepreneurial dynamism, that you will, in fact, strangle China's not just short-term economic growth prospects, but its long-term economic growth prospects as well. And if you begin to put together the factors which now constitute serious strategic economic headwinds against China, they line up as declining productivity growth, the fact that population growth is now peaking, the fact that the country is rapidly aging, particularly for a developing country, and that on top of all that, you have the workforce already having reached its um, maximum size back in 2014 and labour costs therefore going through the roof, that for all those factors, quite apart from the additional headwinds provided by Xi Jinping's decision to move the centre of economic gravity to the left, 
and the international economic headwinds now from the global debate about decoupling and supply chains. Put all that together and you start to see an emerging debate within the China analytical community that says that maybe China doesn't end up as a larger economy than the United States, say, by 2030, or that if it does become a larger economy uh, than the United States by that stage, it won't be much larger. We've come to think of, of China, everything you talk about China in economic terms is trillions, trillions of dollars. It has these massive resources growing in size. But when you look at the the pressures now on Beijing with slowing growth, and all, but, but increasing demand for spending on all fronts, it's, even its resources may not be enough for it. I mean, there's demand more for the military to uh, take on America, more for domestic surveillance. It spends more on domestic surveillance than it does on the military, more for health, welfare, pensions, because, as you say, the aging population, more for the Belt and Road investments, which are a key part of its foreign policy. Am I right in thinking it's not clear that the president can afford to do all of that, is it? If you look purely at budget constraints in China, uh, they are increasingly large. Um, In fact, I've often argued in the United States that the greatest ally of the United States military is the Chinese health, aged care and pension budget Mm. uh, because it acts as a overall uh, constraint around unlimited military expenditure within the Chinese system. As the Chinese, like the rest of us, ultimately have to make public policy choices about where to invest scarce budgetary resources. Obviously, as a Marxist-Leninist state, which believes that you ultimately hold power through the barrel of a gun, the military will be preferenced over these other domains. Look, for example, at North Korea, uh, a formidable military but an impoverished country. China will never go to that extreme under its current leadership. It would crack its fundamental social and economic legitimacy altogether. But nonetheless, the constraints are real. Uh, and therefore, we come, keep coming back to this uh, ultimate economic equation. It's a bit like uh, Bill Clinton's famous aphorism or that of his campaign in 1992. It is the economy, stupid. And to quote the great Australian moral philosophers, if you bugger up the economy, you can bugger up everything else. And so the, there's a pressure because the, we've always regarded it as a sort of Faustian pact that uh, the Chinese people will put up with all sorts of repression, provided the economy, their prosperity, their standard of living is seen to be getting better for them and particularly for their kids, for the younger generation coming uh, through. Um, But as the population ages, and China doesn't spend much on health or welfare or pensions, there is now, to keep that Faustian pact, am am I right in thinking that the pressure to increase spending in that area will be huge? Their analysis as Marxist Leninists of the social contract between the Chinese people and the Chinese Communist Party is, Andrew, exactly as you've just described. Put bluntly, it's we're prepared to cede our political rights to you, the Communist Party, on two conditions. One is uh, that you continue to improve the living standards of the Chinese people, lifting us out of poverty and giving us the sorts of living standards we see enjoyed by people in the democratic world and the Western world in particular. 
Now, that therefore is a, um, an important part of the contract, but there's a second part as well. And this is what the Chinese Communist Party spends more time on, and that is cause us to be proud of China as a nation in the eyes of the international community. In other words, the second part of the social contract is a nationalist one. And part of my argument in the book that I've just written is there is a danger in the long term that as Xi Jinping seeks to move the centre of gravity in Chinese domestic politics and the economy further to the left, that this is offset by him, in fact, moving the centre of gravity of Chinese nationalism further to the, uh, to the right, uh, giving rise to a more assertive foreign and security policy. You write about uh, President Xi's Chinese nationalism in your new book, The Avoidable War, which is about uh, American-Chinese relations and how to manage that relationship. But part of managing that is that you talk about the need to what you call maximize economic engagement. But isn't the reverse already happening? It, it seems to me it's now the strategic aim of both Beijing and Washington to decouple their economies? The question we have, I think, within the decoupling debate is whether it's capital D or small d decoupling, because within the concept of decoupling lies a multitude of possible realities. Uh, for example, within trade, given the fact that these two countries are each other's largest trading partners, is it the decoupling of all or the, just the decoupling of the technology trade? Um, and therefore, what would the ultimate dimensions of the trade relationship look like? So therefore, there is a debate to be had about what actual shape of decoupling is embraced by both sides. Uh, of course, the competition for talent and technology being part of this aggregate equation. Where will it land? I think the United States, from its perspective, would prefer to see a form of decoupling which uh, focuses on uh, investment and technology. And from the Chinese side, they'd like to see a decoupling uh, uh, which enables China to maximise its self-sufficiency uh, in the midst of what they perceive to be the threat of American decoupling and allied decoupling around uh, commodities, energy, food, but also around technological self-resilience and self-reliance as well. So it's interesting you're saying it's, it's the nature of the decoupling and how far it goes uh, has to be determined because you you can already see it taking place. I and mean, there's a lot of Chinese company now listed on the U.S. stock exchange exchanges, but they're under pressure from Beijing uh, to delist. Uh, and some have actually delisted now. On the other hand, the American regulators are being much tougher with those Chinese companies that want to list, looking at the involvement of the Chinese Communist Party. And I may be wrong about this, Kevin Rudd, but I get the impression that the message coming out from the Biden administration is we're not so sure you should be doing a lot of foreign investment in China now, that we see it as an increasingly repressive regime at home and aggressive abroad. It's not a good place to do business. Is that the overall atmosphere we see developing now? At present, I think the United States and to some extent the Chinese are muddling through. Um, we don't as yet have complete clarity on the form of decoupling uh, that is likely to be embraced either by Beijing or Washington, with one exception. It's increasingly clear that the United States sees that its uh, long-term national technological interests 
lie in preventing China from, as they would describe it, stealing US and allied technology, um, or uh, legitimately accessing it simply by the nature of its imports uh, from uh, the United States uh, semiconductor industry. And I think from the Chinese end, they see this as an inevitable consequence of the United States seeking to maximise uh, its hold on global uh, economic and strategic power. And therefore, the massive doubling down by the Chinese in their national technological self-sufficiency program and the quantums of public investment now being thrown at 10 critical high technology areas led by artificial intelligence. I guess the the atmosphere for Western investment has changed, though. I mean, there was a time where, when they were queuing up from Wall Street uh, and the city of London to a lesser extent, German companies out of Frankfurt and so on to get into China. It becomes more difficult when the, the political atmosphere, freedoms trashed in Hong Kong, what some are calling genocide of the Uyghurs, uh, the world's most repressive surveillance state, increased Communist Party control of private companies, aggressive expansion of the military in the Pacific. It, the atmosphere for that kind of continued investment has turned against it a bit? Certainly the sentiment I pick up in European capitals is the overall risk calculus in terms of inbound investment from Europe into China has grown considerably and for a range of different reasons. One, of course, is not wish, wishing to be caught uh, in the middle of the US-China uh, technology decoupling war. That's one factor of which, of course, the poster child has been the debate about uh, 5G. I think another reason has been European corporations have not been immune uh, from the impact that they have seen from uh, changes, radical changes in the policy atmosphere and political atmosphere in Hong Kong, where most of these corporations also have operations. Thirdly, I think what they've seen within China itself is a, a rapid predisposition towards uh, sudden policy change uh, on the part of the Chinese Communist Party. And the conclusion, I think, overall is that the equation is now much uh, more pessimistic as far as China is concerned compared with even three to five years ago. Is America already in a new Cold War with China? No, it's not. I think there's too much loose language about a second Cold War. Remember, the first Cold War was about uh, two systems, two countries, uh, which were committed to uh, one form or another of mutually assured destruction through the use of thermonuclear weapons. The second is they had zero economic engagement with each other. Uh, and thirdly, uh, these were countries which after the Cuban Missile Crisis, the near-death experience associated with it for both of them, nonetheless then uh, for the subsequent 30 years, prosecuted multiple proxy wars around the world. When we look at those three cardinal factors associated with the first Cold War, it is a deep stretch of definitional integrity to say that we've entered into a second Cold War. However, the caveat I'd attach to that is we could slide in that direction. 
in nuclear questions, for example, the Chinese are into uh, a significant rebuild of its uh, strategic rocket forces. It's also revising internally its nuclear doctrine and whether it should abandon its historical position of non-first use. Similarly, you see uh, other questions concerning economic decoupling of the type we've just discussed and whether that ultimately reduces what has been this enormous uh, piece of insulation in the US-China relationship, namely the economic engagement, begin to become thinner and thinner. But as we've just discussed, that is not a done deal at this stage. It's still uh, very much uh, a murky proposition. And so far, we don't see armed proxy wars uh, in uh, the third world between China and the United States, but we do see competitive agendas on the question of uh, aid for development, the Belt and Road Initiative versus various American, Japanese and European alternatives. You argue in your book, The Avoidable War, that China and America, of course, they, they accept, they should accept that because they are strategic adversaries, but they need to make clear what their red lines are so that they don't end up in military conflict by mistake or misunderstanding. What would some of these red lines be? I argue uh, in the book about what I call managed strategic competition. At present, we've got strategic competition between the US and China. Uh, that is the reality, whatever language is used in each capital to describe it, for which the prize is becoming, frankly, the dominant power regionally and globally, both militarily, economically, and technologically. That's the race that's on. The problem with strategic competition now is that it is unmanaged. There are no guardrails. There are no rules of the road. And therefore, the risk day to day of incident, escalation, crisis, conflict and war is ever present. And in the South China Sea, the East China Sea and across the Taiwan Straits, the amount of metal flying around on a given day uh, in terms of aircraft and naval ships and associated ships uh, is frankly mind boggling. And you begin to become concerned about the law of averages. The alternative that I argue in the book is managed strategic competition, that rather than engaging in this imprecise business of push and shove, that a more mature approach uh, would be for the principles of both countries, foreign uh, and defence, uh, to sit down and to sort out, um, by which I mean communicate clearly to each side what the irreducible red lines are at an operational level. Uh, your question was, what would that look like in practice? In the book, I seek to explain five sets of strategic red lines, East China Sea, South China Sea, Taiwan, Korean Peninsula, cyber and space. For example, taking down another country's uh, power generation sector through massive cyber attack uh, would be regarded as crossing one such red line. People often say, well, that's all fine and dandy, but uh, could they actually trust each other to enforce them? Um, or to adhere to them. I think the, the virtue of being uh, openly clear with one another about one's own national set of strategic red lines is that the other side then knows that if they, have, if they violate them, uh, that there will be retaliatory action of one form or another. At present, there's too much guess, push and shove. And on the balance of the logic, I think clarity is far better than uncertainty 
Speaking of clarity, uh, President Biden has now said three times in the past year that America would come to the aid of Taiwan if uh, it was attacked by China. That would therefore seem to be one of his red lines. It, it marks the end of what was called strategic ambiguity. Uh, is he right to do so? I think it is true that he has upped the ante. Um, but where the strategic uh, ambiguity once again takes over from the strategic clarity is what form of military assistance the United States would provide and under what circumstances, given there are multiple scenarios under which a Taiwan crisis could emerge. For example, we often assume that a Taiwan crisis equals what those of us who've been looking at this for too many decades now describe as the million man swim across the Taiwan Straits. That is the classical territorial D-Day type invasion. A range of other scenarios could include, for example, China salami slicing Taiwan by beginning by taking some of Taiwan's offshore islands. The objective being to take them and then to frankly say to the Taiwanese and the Americans, are you really serious about retaking these islands? You really want to risk a war in what for you would be strategically indefensible anyway? So that's one set of scenarios. Another set of scenarios is to the, the Chinese move in the direction of a form of maritime blockade of the island. So strategic ambiguity, in my argument, is still largely preserved because we do not know how and what form the Americans would react under those circumstances. I think the reason Joe Biden did what he did in the language that he's deployed is because in the uh, on the back of what Russia did in Ukraine, the Chinese propaganda message to Taiwan has been very plain. It's been, look carefully, uh, Taiwan. The Americans didn't deploy a single soldier on the ground in Ukraine to defend Ukrainian sovereignty against the Russians, nor will they do it for you in Taiwan. Uh, it's better that you start accommodating to a more peaceful set of arrangements with with Beijing. It's against that background, I think, that uh, Joe Biden sought to uh, allay Taiwanese domestic concerns. It's interesting what you tell us there about China's public analysis of the situation in Ukraine uh, and how that uh, impacts uh, in the East Pacific. Uh, are you saying, therefore, that Russia's troubles in Ukraine have not necessarily given President Xi pause for caution when it comes to Taiwan? Certainly not as much pause for caution as I see alive in much of the more superficial analyses of um, China's response to Russia over Ukraine. You see, at one level, uh, Xi Jinping um, has, together with the rest of the Chinese system, seeing the Russia relationship as fundamentally strategically important for China for the long term. It secures further the, uh, the Russia-China border. It frees China's strategic resources to focus purely in one direction, namely against its regional and global strategic adversary, the United States. It also opens up whole new dimensions to the commodity trade on preferential Chinese terms between Russia and China. Uh, oil, natural gas, as well as agricultural commodities. And beyond that, again, Russia has always acted as a useful uh, strategic distraction device from China's perspective 
in launching uh, various initiatives of a security nature, whether it's in Syria, Libya, or now in Ukraine, which distract the United States from the East Asian West Pacific theater, where China seeks primarily uh, to gain the upper hand against the United States. For these underlying strategic and political reasons, I think the Chinese system are reasonably well satisfied with where things have gone. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Giles Wittell, Tortoise's deputy editor. On the News Meeting podcast, we try to make sense of what should be leading the news with three guests who each pitched the story they think matters most. And once a month, we record a live episode in our newsroom. The next one is on the 27th of March, and I'm going to be joined by the brilliant author and podcaster Elizabeth Day. To come to the event and tell us what you think should lead the news, go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash book. That is tortoisemedia.com forward slash book. President Biden, when fighting the election against uh, President Trump, uh, decided he had to be seen to be as hawkish as Mr. Trump on China during the campaign. But are you surprised that the Biden administration has remained just as hawkish towards China as President Trump? No, I'm not surprised. The balance of power between China and the United States has changed over the last decade. The United States militarily has been preoccupied uh, with um, both uh, the military folly that was Iraq and together with uh, Afghanistan um, and a series of preoccupations, including Syria and the Middle East, during which time uh, China, using what it describes as its period of strategic opportunity, quote unquote, um, has in fact uh, consolidated its hold on military and economic power. And what the Chinese have done, I think, if I read their literature carefully, is conclude over the course of the last decade that they are now in a much more advantageous position relative to the United States than they were at the beginning of the Xi Jinping period. Which brings me to the second point of what's changed structurally, is that Xi Jinping's leadership is qualitatively vastly different from that of his predecessors. Xi Jinping Um, encouraged by the change in the actual balance of power with the United States, uh, but also turbocharged by his own particular leadership style, which is not that of the status quo, which is how can we take, my words, not his, uh, intelligent risks to advance China's interests and values in the region and the world and to extend China's uh, geographical, geopolitical footprint Uh, in the region of the world, that the nature of Xi Jinping's leadership has brought about this second change dynamic in the overall US-China relationship. So for those reasons, and because the two countries are in a strategic competition, my own judgment was uh, that uh, the Democrats under Biden, in terms of the nature of strategic competition, would adopt the same overall framework as 
the Republicans, but unlike the Republicans under Trump, are seeking to be much more systematic about their execution of it, while still providing some room for non-lethal strategic competition and, most critically, some room, for example, on climate change, on continued strategic collaboration with China. Would it be accurate to describe American policy towards China as currently constituted as containment rather than conciliation? I don't think either word uh, accurately describes what the United States is seeking to do. The um, US administration is seeking to constrain uh, China from areas where it sees China in its own judgment as operating outside the norms of international political and economic and security policy conduct, and to build consensus in the international community against China when those violations occur, as opposed to a complete containment of the Chinese power enterprise per se. Should America now be moving, I use a Cold War analogy here, be moving towards a policy of detente with China, as Nixon and Kissinger did with Russia in the Cold War from 1969 onwards? Of course, the engine room of strategic red lines and adhering to them must always be effective deterrence. Um, And therefore, the United States has a responsibility to ensure, for example, on the Taiwan question, that there is adequate deterrence in terms of its own military capabilities in East Asia and the West Pacific and on the part of the Taiwanese themselves in onshore Taiwan to cause Xi Jinping's military commanders to say to him when he asked the question, well, are we ready yet? The year is 2032. Uh, And the military commanders would say, uh, dear chairman, I'm sorry, but uh, those pesky Americans and pesky Taiwanese uh, continue to close the military gap and it's too risky. That effectively um, is the essence of the deterrence at a a military level, uh, which provides the ultimate uh, stability around the strategic red lines, which I referred to before. I think, however, if we can reach a stage where through managed strategic competition, we have the strategic red lines slash deterrence arrangements uh, under control, where we have non-lethal strategic competition being advanced across the the rest of security policy, foreign policy, trade, investment, technology policy, and ideology, if you like, and the great contest for ideas for what shapes the future of the international system, as well as uh, a framework which enables levels of strategic cooperation on climate and global financial stability, but also the next set of global public health challenges, that you then, I think, have a stabilising framework. And both sides at the present, in my judgment, at least for the decade ahead, are probably in the marketplace for a stabilising framework. And then that's where I think the Cold War lessons of detente can then be unfolded. We've talked about the continuity, elements of continuity uh, in US policy during the switch from President Trump to President Biden. Australia now has a new Labour Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. Uh, He was your deputy when you were Prime Minister, I think. Will there be the same continuity in Australian policy towards China? There is a high degree of bipartisan consensus in Australia 
uh, as there is, in fact, currently in the United States on national China strategy. Um, I know Prime Minister Albanese very well. Uh, he's a friend and a colleague of many years standing. And in all the decisions that uh, we took during my period as Prime Minister in relation to China, many of which were quite tough and hard line, he was part and parcel of that decision-making process. I think the overall characteristics of the new government on the China strategy will be to be clear with our Chinese friends that Australia is a 100-year-old ally of the United States going back to the Western Front in the First World War. Um, secondly, that like the United States and the Europeans, that we are believers in the universality of human rights and that uh, nothing's going to turn our course on those questions. But that thirdly, we would, would like to maximise the economic relationship with Beijing in trade and investment terms, maximise our cooperation with Beijing and global decision-making fora like the G20 on climate change uh, and um, global financial stability and global pandemic management. And I think the final element of the equation will be, uh, unlike the Australian Conservatives, less of a predisposition to pull out the megaphone every second Tuesday morning and have a good old blast at Beijing, and then for Beijing to have a good old blast back. And if we are going to part company with China on something significant and substantive, I think the predisposition in Canberra will be to do so in partnership with our friends and allies around uh, the Indo-Pacific and around Europe, rather than to uh, act as a free-range chicken. Mr Albanese came from the left of your party, uh, but he won from the centre-left. Uh, are there any lessons for Keir Starmer in his victory? I know enough about um, British electoral politics to know uh, not to use public forums in the United Kingdom to provide gratuitous advice to political leaders uh, about how they should conduct their domestic politics. I think Keir Starmer, as I've observed it, has done a first-class job in holding Boris Johnson to account uh, in basic accountability over pandemic management and let's call it the ethical standards of government. Um, and on the policy front, uh, as I understand Keir Starmer's platform, it is one which also seeks, unlike his predecessor, to be in one of open dialogue, engagement and discourse with British business. That, of course, is necessary for any centre-left government uh, or any centre-left party seeking to come into government. Finally, uh, Kevin Rudd, Mr Albanese has appointed what I might call a Minister for Republicanism, is that back on the Australian agenda? And, and if so, what's the likely timetable? Mr Albanese, like myself, uh, is a lifelong Republican. Um, and um, But having said that, uh, we have never been as a political party in some crushing hurry to uh, bring on um, the abolition of the monarchy as a matter of national political urgency. These things are much better done as political consensus emerges and builds over time, rather than dividing the polity unnecessarily on those things. I think there's a further factor at play in the minds of all of us who come from the Australian Labor Party. And as a party, we are committed to Australian Republic. We have been for a very long time. Um, and that's that uh, there's a deep affection, uh, even on the part of the Australian Labor Party, towards Her Majesty the Queen. And uh, I don't think anyone wishes to be offensive to our nana. You know, <laughs> so so I think there's a bit of uh, 
there's a bit of uh, there's a bit of sentiment in the place which we don't want to be disrespectful to her madge. But I think if trying to give you a sense of the sentiment in Australia, it's one of what I describe as um, gradual shift over time, um, a desire not to be offensive to Queen Elizabeth II, uh, and a desire to bring about constitutional change in Australia on the basis of national consensus rather than huge national division. Kevin Rudd, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Andrew, for having me on your program. Tortoise members and subscribers to Tortoise Plus on Apple Podcasts can hear my reflections on that conversation in a bonus episode called Inside the Interview, which comes out every Friday during the series. You can join our newsroom for £50 a year by going to tortoisemedia.com forward slash Andrew and entering the code andrewneal 50 That's five zero and all one word. This episode was mixed by Studio Clong with original music by Tom Kinsella. The executive producer of The Backstory is Lewis Vickers. Thanks for listening. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hello, I'm Giles Wittell, Tortoise's Deputy Editor. On the News Meeting podcast, we try to make sense of what should be leading the news with three guests who each pitched the story they think matters most. And once a month, we record a live episode in our newsroom. The next one is on the 27th of March, and I'm going to be joined by the brilliant author and podcaster Elizabeth Day. To come to the event and tell us what you think should lead the news, go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash book. That is tortoisemedia.com forward forward slash book.